morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And if you're here visiting, well, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for joining us this morning. We're here uh, this semester in a series on the book of Mark. We're going to be looking at Mark chapters 1 through 9, and we are still in chapter 1. You'll find that on page, eight, page 836 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. I promised uh, first service that next week we would actually move on to the next page, 837. I, I think that's true. I, I don't want to really be held to that, but we're making our way there. The title of this series as we go through Mark is we're talking about the fact that the king has come, that Jesus is the king, he is God's king, and he has come. And that's what Mark is laying out for us in the book of Mark and talking to us about what it means to know that king. So we take another step in that this morning. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump in here with Mark chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and pray that you would, in fact, by your spirit, open up these words to us. It is your word to us in Scripture. And some of us come this morning maybe very confident and expectant that when we open up this word and listen for you, that you will, in fact, speak to us. Uh, We thank you that you won't let us down. Some of us may well come this morning not so sure what we think about the Bible or what we think about the Jesus that it proclaims. Would you open up this word to us? Lord, we need you. We need you speaking into our lives. So we ask that you would do that. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Lord, that we pray. Amen. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with his hired servants, and they followed him. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for God's glory. Let me let's start with a question. Um, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been in this for a long time, or you come to church regularly, you sort of know that Jesus came in order to forgive us of our sins and in order to bring us back into relationship with God. That relationship had been broken, and now through His death and resurrection on our behalf, we are brought back in. That's true. But let me ask you this. That's true for you. What does Jesus now want you to do? Or what does he want from you now? Um, Does he want you to go to church on Sundays? Want you to volunteer at a soup kitchen? Does he want you to be good? Or to tithe your money to the church or to vote in a certain way? You see, now, now, now what? My uh, older son, Henry, is four and a half, and he, he loves swords, okay? I, I didn't have to teach him this, and some days I regret that he... Like, I don't know what, but he just... He loves playing with swords. And this summer, excuse me, this summer, this Christmas, we, we gave him a wooden sword. And of all his play swords, this is the one that could do most damage. And he, and he loves it. And the, the moment we gave him that sword, he didn't just look at it and say, you know, 
this would look really great if I went and hung it up on, you know, on the wall in my room. Or I know just the spot in my closet for this. No, he picked up that sword and suddenly, you know, he was no longer Henry. He was Sir Henry. (laughs) Or he was no longer Henry. He was uh, Captain One-Eyed Henry the Scurvy Dog who also lives in my house, pirates and knights and stories, because as soon as he picked up that sword, it wasn't just a sword. It was a story. It was a life. And it just came alive. And Henry came alive. And when God comes into our life and does something for us, it's not so that we might just stand there, but he comes and brings us a story as well that we might come to life and we might become to life to something See, when Jesus comes, he does, in fact, come to do something to us. And we see in the Bible, and we see here in this passage in Mark, very simply this point, that when Jesus comes, he comes and calls us so that we might follow him. That's what Mark's trying to get across to us. Jesus comes, he breaks in, and he says, follow me. That's the point of what we see here. We're going to see that Jesus does call us into this life, this story of following him. And we see three, we're going to see three things here about this call that comes to us for this life in Jesus, this following of Jesus. We're going to see here first the scope of Jesus' call and the immediacy of Jesus' call and the gift of Jesus' call. Those three things. So first, the scope of his call. Look with me back at uh, verse 15. 1450. Now, after John was arrested, John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. He comes and he calls them and later says, Come and follow me. He calls them. And we're going to see the scope of this call. What is embraced in this call of Jesus? We're going to see this call of Jesus, the scope of it, it is both wide and deep. Which is another way of saying that it embraces everything. It is both wide and deep. First, it is wide. You notice when Jesus comes in, he proclaims God's kingdom. He says, God's kingdom has come near. He come, God's kingdom has come near in me, in fact, is what Jesus is saying. And we don't use the word kingdom very much in our, our normal conversation. Now, we do with Sir Henry in my house. We talk about kingdoms. But you probably don't in your house a whole lot because it's not a word that we use. But here it is a Bible word. And it is a dominion word. It is a, it is a word of realm and of power and of influence because God's kingdom is the realm in which he is acknowledged as king. Now you see there's kind of two senses in which the Bible talks about God being king. First, God is king by virtue of being God over everything that exists. He is the king, acknowledged or not. But when we see Jesus come in and proclaim that the kingdom has come, we see the kingdom come in this sense. The kingdom where God as king, where his kingdom is being recognized and stepped into and embraced. Where the influence of God's kingdom comes to the surface as God calls people to himself in this kingdom. So in that sense, this kingdom that Jesus comes and proclaims is a growing kingdom, an expanding kingdom. God the King comes and calls people into His kingdom. It expands into every area of life in every corner of the globe. Abraham Kuyper, who was an early 20th century uh, Dutch theologian and statesman, he, he said this very famously, In the total expanse of human life, there is not a single square inch of which the Christ, who alone is sovereign, does not declare, That is mine. See what he says, Jesus is the king and he comes and he says, everything, it is mine, I am the king. 
And may that be recognized, acknowledged, embraced, lived in. In other words, God's kingdom come and it touches on every area of our life. It means God's kingdom rules over our Sunday mornings and our Monday mornings. Our Sunday mornings and our Saturday nights. It means that He is king over and His realm is over our personal devotional lives. And your business, your business ethics and environmental ethics and relational integrity. Over your study habits and work habits, your recreation, your reading, your decisions about having children or not having children, marrying, dating, caring for your aging parents, caring for the poor, and your money, not just what you put into a plate for a tithe on a Sunday morning, but all the rest of it too. It all belongs to Him. You see, God's sovereignty, His kingdom says that all of this is encompassed. He says, my kingdom is wide. I have come to show my dominion over everything, to call all aspects of your life into following me, is what Jesus says to us. And your experience as a Christian uh, may well look like this from time to time as you come to a new phase in life or something comes up or something is just sort of made apparent to you and you feel like you're turning a corner in life and you come around the corner and you see, oh, Oh, Jesus means to have rule over that part of my life as well. It wasn't just these things. It's, it's that thing too. It's, it's even that. It's all of that. Think about it this way, that the kingdom, this kingdom that we are called into, this kingdom that is wide, it is like a whole piece of cloth. There are no rips in it. There are no seams in it. It has not had to be stitched together. But instead, that it lays out before us a a, a life, a seamless life, where all is seen and recognized to be within the realm of God's kingdom. Every part of our life. Every aspect of our beings. In other words... uh, Religion is sometimes presented this way, even Christianity sometimes, as if here's the ultimate goal of Christianity, to help you be a spiritually integrated person in the midst of a terribly fragmented world. Okay, In other words, that if you would just accept Jesus into your life or just accept a certain amount of religion into your life, that it would help tie together the spiritual needs that you have so that you can have consistency of person, consistency of spirit, consistency of character as you go through all the muddled mess of all the different areas of your life. And see, Jesus comes and says, it's not just, I didn't just come to make you an integrated person. I came to show you that the world is an integrated world. It is all mine. And every aspect of your life is mine too. It all is lived out before my eyes. And he wants us to have that kind of integrated, without a seam experience of all of life lived before our gracious God, under God's gaze in his kingdom, because it embraces all of life. Now let me ask you this, when, when you, listen to, you listen to somebody preaching, when you go home and you read your Bible, when you're in a small group, maybe when you're praying, what are the things, like when you're praying, what are the things that you pray for and about on a regular, on a regular basis, and what are the things that you just don't want to pray about, or don't want to think about? Or you come and listen to a sermon, what are the points that you like hearing, and then those couple points where you could just as well do without those? Or Jesus speaking to you in the Bible and you read one of his sermons and you think, I wish he had just stopped at, say, verse 14. We would have been okay then. What are those pieces that you don't want to hear? What are those pieces of life that you don't want to face up to? Where are those corners and nooks and crannies of life where you, even today, are being resistant to saying, Jesus, you are Lord of all. 
And so you call all areas of me and all aspects of my life before your gaze that you might deal with them and heal them and redeem them as well. Where are we running from those things? I think as, as we interact with the world around us that's not following Jesus, you know, we get different, you may well receive sort of different challenges or different objections to your faith. And, and here's one thing that I think is maybe particularly objectionable in our culture, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say this because you, you see it as well. I think maybe a lot of people looking over your shoulder into your life maybe might not uh, object to the fact that your faith is wide in the sense that you expect it to embrace all of life and affect your decisions and you're thinking about everything. That kind of wideness is okay. But what they don't want to hear is that Jesus' call is wide in the sense that it not only affects you, but it also affects me. It can be wide for you, but don't think that wideness embraces me as well. And Jesus is saying both here. That it comes to bring a wideness and expansiveness of our understanding of the kingdom in our own lives, but that God's kingdom too goes out and puts its call on all of us. In that sense, very exclusive. As a sovereign king comes with imperatives and says, repent. Believe in the gospel, the good news. So you see, it is, it's, uh, the scope of this kingdom, it's wide. But the second thing we see here, too, is that it's deep. It's not only wide, but it's deep. It doesn't only embrace all of life, but it goes down deep, sending its roots down deep into the core of who you are. You see, it goes so much deeper than, an, uh, than a simple moral or ethical code to live by or a strategy for some sort of abundant living. See, the gospel comes that it might go straight for internal change, that it might go for nothing less than your heart. Because, you see, an employer comes to you and essentially says this, I want your labor. And a, uh, a, a merchant or a uh, retailer comes to you and says, I want your business. And maybe a volunteer opportunity comes to you and says, I want your time. And on April 15, the government comes to you and says, I want your money. But you see, Jesus comes to us, and in this way, like a spouse, another biblical image for our relationship with Jesus. Our, Jesus comes to us like a spouse, and he says, I want your heart. I want you. I want all of you. Not just your time and not just your finances, not just your abilities and your gifts. I want all of you. His call is comprehensive. It goes deep. Every bit of us. And this deepness we're seeing in, we see in the, the actual call to which Jesus beckons us here. When he, when he says these words in his first sermon, it says you know, here that Jesus came and proclaimed. Same word for he came and preached. And he said this, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Now, when we as uh, kind of Western, you know, largely Western 21st century people, when we hear those words, repent and believe, we tend to think this. Repent means, okay, turn away from all of your individual sins and ask for forgiveness for them so that you might be forgiven. And that's certainly true. It's gloriously true. But, but for a first century audience, they would have heard something much more and fuller than just that. Uh, there's a... Um, uh, a passage uh, written by Josephus, who is a first century uh, Jewish historian, c considered by many of his own people as a traitor because he became a soldier in the army of Rome. And first century uh, Israel at the time w was a, um, an apocalyptic revolution waiting to happen and just waiting for the right spark. And there were many sparks that came around in the first century. And in one of these places of rebellion, the Romans sent Josephus, Josephus to this uh, rebellious band of people that were trying to overthrow the 
arms of Rome as an envoy. And they came and he came to him and he tells us in his history, he came to the leader of these rebels. And here is what he said to them. Repent and believe in me. And when he said that, he wasn't trying to say to them, I'm your savior and I can forgive you of your individual sins. What he was saying to them was repent, which means turn around, turn around and believe in me. Stop believing in this wrong path of rebellion, but come around and see things from my point of way. Just come around and turn your life on an entirely new track. Turn around to a whole new course of life. And that's what Jesus is saying. It certainly encompasses forgive us of our sins, but he's coming to say, I'm not sim- I've not simply come to just kind of sprinkle forgiveness on all these disparate sins in your life. I've come to take your entire life and turn it in a different direction. I am king. And now I'm coming to bring your whole life into line with me. Remember a number of years ago, uh, there seems like every week there's a story about cruise ships. I've never been on a cruise ship, but I know that you're not supposed to eat the food on a cruise ship. If you remember, a number of years ago, there were these several ships that had these outbreaks of E. coli, and everybody got sick on the ship. And you can only imagine what happens in a cruise line at that point. You, you, I would imagine you, you appoint a new captain to get on board the ship. And he probably starts in the kitchen, and he says, okay, we need to get up to a grade A in our uh, cleanliness back here. And we need, to, we need to clean the decks, and we need to clean out the ship, and we need to get things ship-shape around here, right? I mean, you would expect that. But see, Jesus is saying, I came to do much more than simply polish the interior of the ship. He says, when the new king comes on board, he says, not only are we going to do that, change course, we are now going to an entirely different port. We are going someplace different now. And it involves a turn around. When I was uh, in college, I remember we had one of the breaks uh, driving home. It was about a seven-hour drive and involved two interstates, I-77 going north and I-40 going west. Uh, I did the I-77 going to north part just right. And as I leaned over to put a tape in my tape deck, I don't know what I was doing back then, uh, you know, th- I look back up and, and things just begin to get more and more unfamiliar. And I realized that I'm like 20 miles past where I was supposed to get on the other interstate. And I had a lot of options at that point. I could scream in anger, I could pull over and cry, or I could do the only thing that was really going to do anything good for me, which was to get back on the interstate going in the other direction. Because I was headed to the wrong place. What we see here about Jesus' call to repent is exactly that. Not just simply to come brush things up a little bit, but to turn around and go someplace new. Life in God's kingdom, an utterly new destination and life for us. So he says that it must go deep. We must repent and believe. Eugene Peterson says this about repentance. Repent requires a decision to leave one way of life and set out on another. It commands a change of mind or heart that results in a change of direction. Now, when we talk about the call of God in our lives being both wide and deep, it's easy for us maybe to embrace one of those more than the other. What happens if your understanding of the faith is perhaps wide but not deep? You, you get the fact that it is to encompass all of life for you, but it doesn't run down deep. Well, then likely one way or another, your life is going to be seen rightly by others to be hypocritical or shallow. 
That there's no real challenge in it. As others look into your life, they see you going through the motion, but no real changed heart. Nothing really different about you. Serving others, maybe, but no sense that you're doing so out of a changed heart that's now moved by compassion for other people who are in need, just as you are in need for God Himself. As you recognize God's goodness, His work in you, you see other people differently. If your faith is only wide and not deep, it will not have that ring of authenticity to it. Or maybe for you as a parent, your faith is wide but not deep, and you're trying obediently and dutifully to show your kids um, that following God has to do with everything, but then those times come when they mess up, they fail, they disobey, and you rightly have to bring consequences into their lives because of their actions. Is there a sense of love and compassion, even in the midst of correction, that shows that we too have a heart that knows our own deep ongoing need for change and correction as well. It's not just my kid messed up, but I am a mess up before God and He is gracious with me even as He disciplines me. And so I will be gracious with my children even as I bring correction into their lives. Is our faith wide and deep? Or maybe feel like you fall off the other end of this that in, in some sense, your faith is deep but not wide. And if that's the case, then others are going to look at you and see that uh, you might well have a deep sense of personal piety and moral excellence, uh, but that uh, really at the end of the day, your faith is irrelevant to the world around you. Maybe you have this deep sense of personal devotion and connection to Jesus, but it's not wide, it's not embracing every area of life, and for you it's just this individualistic means towards spiritual self-actualization. In other words, I love Jesus, but that doesn't really have anything to do with how I spend my money. Or I love Jesus, but that doesn't affect my stewardship of the world or my engagement with my community or how I respond to my friends. It's me and Jesus. But you see, Jesus' call for us to follow him, this call that comes to us, has a scope that is both wide and deep. All right, second thing we see is not only the scope of it, the immediacy of it. You notice that right here, and this happens several times already in Mark, and it happens everywhere in Mark, that things are always happening immediately. You know, Jesus comes to these, uh, these fishermen, and he says, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And what do they do? Immediately they leave their boats, and immediately they leave their nets. Now, we know from the other Gospels that it may well be this isn't the first time these men have had some connection with Jesus. Maybe they've heard him preach. They've been around him. Some of them might even have met him. But what Mark focuses on is not that background stuff, but this moment for them when they hear Jesus speak to them and they respond immediately. They leave their boats. They leave their nets. They leave their family and follow Jesus. Now, for many of us in the actual practical outworkings of our lives, Jesus' call does not necessarily mean leave your career, and it does not necessarily mean turn your back on your family, but it does mean this, that nothing can come between you and following Jesus. It is the card that trumps all other cards. Will you follow him, and will you follow him now? See, the call comes to them with this suddenness, with this immediacy. Even in the beginning of our passage here, Jesus came proclaiming the gospel, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's here now. Now, this time that's been waited for is here It's breaking in now. Respond now. He says to these men, come and follow me now. And they do. Same sense you get from um, Jesus in in Matthew 8, another place where he's talking to these people who would follow after him. And this one man comes to Jesus after hearing him preaching. He says, I will follow you. I'll go wherever you go. But first, let me go home and bury my father. 
Now, that, that likely doesn't mean my father died this morning in the funerals this afternoon. It likely means my father is old and eventually he's going to die. And once my father dies, then I can pack up that part of my life and then I can come follow you. And Jesus says, no, let the, let the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me. He says to the disciples right here, and they leave their jobs, they leave their family connections, they come and follow him. And he says the same thing to us if we would follow him as well. Come now. The call comes with immediacy and it calls us to respond now. None of this, uh, maybe you've said this at some time in your life, maybe you're saying it now. You know, this sense of, I sort of get what Jesus is saying. It's starting to make some sense to me. And I see that it's important. And one day I'm going to come to the point in my life where I'm going to follow him. You know, uh, when I get out of college, I'm going to take my faith really seriously. But right now I've got school and my career and fun and all kinds of things that are happening. Or, you know, life's just really busy right now. We've got a bunch of young kids. But when I retire, then I'll have time to really take this Jesus thing Seriously, I'll, I'll follow him then. Commentator says this about Jesus' call to come now. He says, Jesus proclaims the kingdom not to give content, to, but, but to convey a summons. He stands as God's final word of address to man in man's last hour. Either a man submits to the summons of God or he chooses this world in its riches and honor. Jesus comes and says, respond now. And it comes to us exactly the same way. Now, we see the, the scope of his call and the immediacy of his call. But lastly, we also see another thing here. We see the gift of his call. That this call of Jesus, come and follow me, is a beautiful gift given to us. That this kingdom that he brings us into is good news. That's exactly the way it's proclaimed. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, which means good news. This is good news for us that God's kingdom has come. Life-changing, history-changing, altering, changing news for us, for you. It is good news. And it's good in two ways. First, it brings us a vital connection to Jesus. You see, Jesus was not the only traveling teacher in his time who would come and have followers, disciples who came after him. There were rabbis that did exactly the same thing. But the difference is that for Jewish rabbis, their students came to them. Their students came and said, you are a rabbi. I want to follow you. Can I be your student? But you see, Jesus does it backwards like no one else. He says, instead, he walks out into the world and he finds his people and he says, you, come and follow me. And this would have sounded shocking to a rabbinical student of the day, likely because when a student would join a rabbi, he knew that his ultimate allegiance was not really to the rabbi, it was to the Torah, the law, God's word that that rabbi was ushering him into, was educating him in. But here Jesus comes and says, not simply follow the Torah and I'll show you how, he comes and says, follow me. He says, I am the center of this whole deal. I am the king. Come and follow me. And so you see, when he comes and issues this call, he is bringing us into a life, not simply of, um, of obligations and obedience and kingdom rule. It's kingdom rule where we are bound to our king. He says, come and follow me. Come be with me. When you come into this kingdom, you get me, the king, your king now. Not one who stands far off, but one who stands close. This vital connection with Jesus. That's what comes to us as we hear this call of come and follow me. We get Jesus. We get this vital connection to Jesus, but we get a second thing here, and we see it in this call that he gives to these fishermen on the side of the sea. 
We also get a vital participation in his story. Because when he comes and says, come and follow me, what does he say? Come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He says, this life you have of catching fish, I'm going to replace it with something different. I'm going to give you kingdom work. I'm not only going to call you to myself, I'm going to call you into my story as well. My vocation as well. My work as well. He says, when you come and follow me, not only do you become a citizen of the kingdom, you become an active agent in the kingdom who is bringing the hope of the world to the world around you. He says that for these disciples, and he says it for us. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. God's kingdom going forward, and it doesn't just simply come to us. God graciously, in his goodness to us, allows us to be a part of the very work. That we get caught up in it, that we come alongside Jesus as we become voices for him, pointing others to Jesus as well. Vital connection to Jesus. Vital participation in his story. The gift of his call for us. We try to wrap it all up this way. Jesus comes onto the stage here and he says, this is what I want for you. This is what the Christian life is all about. Come, follow me. And we've seen the scope of that, that it's wide and that it's deep and that it's immediate. And that this call is a gift as well. You know, I think about that picture of my son, Henry. He's got his sword. Suddenly he's a pirate or a knight. And he's charging off into great adventures. He's been brought into a story. Even from our very first days, we love to imagine a story like that. My son can see the world in three-dimensional fairy tale, and it's beautiful to watch. But I want him to know that one day as he grows, that very beautiful thing that he caught a glimpse of has a corresponding reality that's even more beautiful than that. Because at four years old, you know you were made for something. And Jesus steps onto the scene and says, yes, in fact, you were made for something. Come and follow me. Find your life in me. My kingdom life at work in you. Come into the work that I will give you. Making disciples as I go and make disciples. This hope that comes to you is the hope for the world. And you will be a part of bringing it to the world around you. Come and find your life in me. Come and follow That's Jesus' great invitation for us. And there is enough power and beauty and danger, adventure, and meaning here for all of us. Let's pray. Father, it is good news that you come and say the kingdom has come. Come follow me. Would you help us to hear that call? Hear it for the first time today. Hear it anew again. Open our eyes in wonder to what you have called us into. Lord, rescue us from our isolated navel gazing and lift our eyes up to you and to the world around us. It is a beautiful kingdom you have brought us into. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.